I want to believe, but the Bible is full of violence. We're in a really important series. Last week we talked about, I want to believe, but my prayers aren't answered. I want to believe, but there's suffering in the world. You know, I got a lot of great questions last week. Please, everybody, keep the questions coming because this is how we learn. This is how we clarify. This is how we work together to better understand the Bible and better understand God. Throw your questions in the chat. Email me at john.sly at trygrace.org. Daily Grace that comes out every day, Monday to Friday, so important during this series because it's like a living communication because I'm going to answer some of those questions here on Sundays, but I'm going to also answer some of the questions on Daily Grace, which I did this past week. So please, please, please keep the questions coming. The Bible is primarily interested, particularly Genesis, primarily interested in extrinsic suffering. What is extrinsic suffering? That's human choices. We embrace things that are wrong and it causes all kinds of problems. There's intrinsic suffering, which is disease or death or natural disasters, which Genesis really isn't focused on at all. It's focused on when we embrace things. So we talked about that last week, and I talked about it this past week on Daily Grace, the difference between extrinsic and intrinsic suffering. Today, it's violence. Next week, we're talking about genocide. So today and next Sunday, uh, you know, pretty, pretty similar violence in genocide. How can I believe when God is calling us to commit genocide? So your question's really important. So please think about doing that. Now, here's, here's the big question. Can I trust God? That's what this is really all about. Can I trust God? Can I trust the Bible? Because the Bible's calling us. God's calling us to center our lives on him. He's the solid rock. He's our foundation. I should build my life on God. But can I trust a God? I want to believe, but the Bible is filled with violence. So can I actually do this? So we are in a very special location today. We chose this location for a very important reason. Do you know where Arlington County got its name? Okay, Ben, let's show everybody where Arlington County got its name. You see that? See that on the screen? That's General Robert E. Lee's mansion at Arlington Cemetery. And that is where Arlington County got its name because his mansion was called Arlington House. Now, everybody, we all know, and this is why this is the perfect location. We all know that General Lee was the commander of the Confederate Army. He is the famous commander of that. How in the world could we believe that slavery, a terrible injustice, something so wicked and terrible is right, particularly, particularly as focus on this today. How can you have this? And you, you, you know this, okay? How can you have Christians who bring down the global slave trade because of their belief in the Bible, that they see it clearly, that we're all created in God's image, that God introduces us this thought of universal human rights. How can you have people who bring down, through their belief in the Bible, that we're all created in God's image, they bring down the global slave trade, and yet you have over here some Christians who are supporting slavery because of their belief in the Bible. How do we bring those two things together? Well, I want to tell you a story. And if you want to know more information about this, January the 15th, 2017, in our Racial Reconciliation Series, go on our website. You can look it up, January 15th, 2017. The message is called The Message. I talk more about this. Well, one of the reasons, there are a number of factors, but one of the reasons 
that some Christians supported slavery was the curse of Ham. Noah's son, Ham. Noah and Ham, they have a problem, an altercation, and Noah curses his son. And he curses him to be a slave, to be the lowest of slaves. And some people incorrectly interpret the Bible and say that Ham is black, and that's why black people are living in slavery, and that's why we can be okay with it, because it's in the Bible. And that's totally wrong. It's a total misinterpretation, completely out of step. And that is why this series is so important, because we want to really dig in and do some serious work at understanding cultural context and rightly dividing God's Word, 2 Timothy 2.15. The Apostle Paul writes to young Timothy. He says, Timothy, study to show yourself approved. Be diligent. Put some serious mental horsepower into studying the Bible and then rightly divide God's word. God's word is magnificent. Universal human rights. It's God's idea. That is the thought that changed the world. We say this. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal. Self-evident. Self-evident to who? It wasn't self-evident to anybody until God came along and says, I've created all people in my image. God stands alone, completely unique. Nobody else brings forth that idea, yet God alone in the Bible brings forth that idea that has transformed the world. It wasn't self-evident to anybody until the Bible said it. And the Bible is the only place where we find that. So the Bible is magnificent and God is good, but how do I deal with these two different things? It's because God's Word has not been rightly divided, and that's why this series is so incredibly important. Because if we don't rightly divide God's Word, terrible things, grave things will take place. So we need to dig in and we need to study God's Word. If we don't, that's where... People, like, for whatever reason, I don't know him, but I've read his quotes, and I'm sure many of you have as well, the famous atheist Richard Dawkins. He says this about God. God is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. And then he goes on to say that God is unjust, he's unforgiving, he's bloodthirsty, and he is a racist. How do you get that out of universal human rights that all people are created in God's image out of love? What is going on here? Where is the misunderstanding? And everybody, again, back to the beginning, why would I trust God? Why would I center my life on God? Why would I let my life revolve around God if I have that view of God? If I look at the violence uh, that's in the Bible and say, God, I can't trust you. How can I trust a violent God? Well, Violence. From start to finish, from start to finish, everybody, in the Bible, God is seen, is seen as a warrior. There's divine violence in the Bible. Look at the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. There's 39 books. Only three of the 39 books, only three, talk about, don't, don't talk about divine violence. You got Ruth, Ecclesiastes, and my beloved Song of Solomon. Those are the only three books that don't talk about divine violence. Everything else does talk about violence. And then you get to the New Testament, and a lot of people say, well, God is so much nicer in the New Testament. Like, something happens between the Old and the New Testament. Like, God goes to anger management with Jack Nicholson, and he just really gets nice. But I'm not really sure that's the case because Jesus talks about a very violent future judgment that is coming our way. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ is seen as a warrior king who comes back riding on a white horse. I think uh, Clint Eastwood did a movie about this, The Pale Rider. But 
Jesus comes back as a warrior king. And he's riding on this white horse. He's got this big sword that's coming out of his mouth to bring judgment, violent judgment on the world. So I'm not really sure that things get a whole lot better in the New Testament. Well, I want to read, started last week on John 11. I want to continue the story because there's something very interesting here in John chapter 11. So this is about the death of Lazarus. And he has two sisters, Mary and Martha. Last week, we talked about Martha's interaction with Jesus. Let's talk about Mary's interaction with Jesus now. Uh, picking it up, John eleven thirty two. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's exactly what Martha, the sister, had said last week. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, and here we go, this is important, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then the favorite verse of every teenager who's ever been in Sunday school, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the entire Bible, Jesus wept. So what does wept mean? And what does that part mean where he was deeply moved and he's troubled in spirit? It means he was intensely agitated. This doesn't necessarily come through, but here's what unpacking of the Greek language will help us to understand that which was written. Intensely ang angry. He was outraged. He was moved deeply. So the word wet means the same word that is used for horses in the army right before they go into a battle. They would whip the horses into a frenzy. They would get them snorting mad. And the same is used, same word here is used of Jesus. He is snorting mad. He is ticked off. He's looking at death. He's looking at suffering. And he is moved deeply. He is ready to become violent. Because this word generally is used when somebody is so mad that they're getting ready to have a physical reaction or action to their anger. And this is where we see Jesus. He's looking at the suffering and death of the world and he is moved. He is outraged. He is angry. He is ready, everybody, to get violent. Now, I want to say this. I just want to think about this. It's going to sound odd, but we would not want a non-violent God. Everybody, not necessarily would we want a non-violent God. I want to read something to you from a Yale professor, Miroslav Volf. Uh, I actually, uh, one of his books is on the resource list. You can find it in the sermon notes there under the uh, notes tab. A lot of resources there. But this Yale professor says something, and I just think that we need to hear this perspective. It'll help. This is what he says. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda and the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? 
By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. So think about this. In the face of evil and suffering, terrible injustice, would we really want a God who is calm and unmoved by that? Do we really want a God who is completely without violence? Is that something we want? Now, in general, everybody, it is those who are living in the comfortable West. Let's focus on Christians for a moment. It is those of us Christians, followers of Jesus, who are living in the comfortable West that we read about the violence in the Bible and a violent God, and we're shocked and embarrassed by that. But it is those people who are living under constant oppression, under constant threats of violence, who are suffering, who are actually praying for God to come with divine violence and to bring a divine deliverance. They're hoping for that. They're welcoming that. So we have to be careful when we talk about divine violence and being shocked by that and embarrassed by that because you have a lot of people living in other places in the world who are like, God, please bring me out of this. And they welcome divine violence. Now, There are a lot of places we can turn right now to talk about, as I said, every book in the Bible, in the Old Testament, except for three, talk about divine violence. So there's a lot of places right now that we could go, but I just want to go to one place so that we can stay laser focused. I want to go to Noah in the flood because that is cataclysmic. It's huge. It's global violence. Like God on a very big, grand scale kills everybody. And here, here's, here's the reason personally why I want to go there. Because when I was in seminary, I'll never forget the day, my professor said in class that God caused the first Holocaust. He said God killed everybody except for Noah and his small family on the ark. God kills everybody. And he says, do you want to trust in a God like that? Now, my professor wasn't trying to get us to think deeper or anything about that and come to a place where we trusted God more. He didn't want to do that. He actually wanted, because he said it to us, he said, the God of the Bible is violent and petty and judges and he's filled with wrath, just like all the other gods that are described in the text, right? Uh, not in the text, but in, in all other religions. So that really undermined faith. Man, it's been, my mind's been working on this for years. Is that really the case? Again, how do you get universal human rights, a God of justice and love for all people, and then God hates people. He's just like all the other gods. He's petty. He's bloodthirsty. He's racist, as Dawkins says. How do you get those two together? And so my professor says, can you trust a God like that? So I want to believe, but the Bible's filled with violence. I want to believe, but God is a violent God. And we see from start to finish in the Bible, we see this divine violence that is going on. Well, in order for us to correctly, good, here's good scholarship. In order for us to correctly understand 
the violence that we see in the flood story, this global flood going on, we've got to take a swim in a cultural river because that's how you do it. You've got to go and look at it through their eyes in the ancient Near East. You got to take a look at what they did with their literature and what genre is it. And you have to piece all of this together. And I said this last week and I'll say it again. We in the past 100 years, leaps and bounds have a greater understanding because all the discoveries we made, particularly in the last 30 years, oh my goodness, our understanding has gone just straight, just gone straight up. And so to look at it through their eyes and to do great scholarship, here is what we would come up with. And again, we're trying to rightly divide God's word. So let me read you just a couple couple verses from the story just to remind you. I encourage you to read it on your own. It's in Genesis chapter 6. That's where it starts. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I've created. So that sounds really, really bad. God's going to just wipe everybody out. Men, women, children, animals in a moment. Everybody just gets wiped out. Uh, Genesis 6, 13. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. So, all right, people who chose their own way, and as a result, chaos ensued. They rejected God, and now they're living in a great mess. The world is just completely filled with violence. 619, you are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, like all animals. (laughs) They've got to come to Noah. He's got to gather them all up. All the living creatures, male and female, in order to keep them alive. So I want to talk about two really important things about the ancient Near East. And here's what we have learned. Hyperbole and theology. Those are the two things I want to talk about. Hyperbole and theology. So in the ancient Near East, a very common rhetorical tool is to use hyperbole. We have, for instance, this is outside of the Bible. Outside of the Bible, we have some writings that say, like there's one particular king, he ruled for 43,000 years. That's a really long time. That's not the time that he lived. He just ruled for that amount of time, 43,000 years. So, so hyperbole is commonly used in the ancient Near East. We see this in the Bible. We see that in the story of Joseph, Genesis 41. So there's a famine in the land and Joseph has come to power in Egypt. He's the prime minister of Egypt and there's famine in the land and he has, um, he has planned for it. And so they have food in Egypt. And we're told in Genesis 41 that all the world came to Joseph to get food from Joseph. Everybody and the whole world, all of them came to get Joseph. So those living in Australia, they made the trek across, across the oceans to Egypt, even though they were already starving because the whole world was under a famine, that somehow they made it all the way from Australia, they made it all the way from Alaska, that the entire world, and they just go to Egypt to see anybody, they all stood before Joseph. The entire planet comes, makes the journey from all over the world. Do you really think that's what happened? How about this one? And uh, Joshua says that he goes into the land and he just wipes everybody out. Then a few chapters later in the next book, Judges, it says cities are filled with the people that he wiped out like they're living. Did they get resurrected? I don't know. Hyperbole. Last one, Zephaniah chapter one. It says during the Babylonian conquest, so when, the, when Babylon came in and they destroyed Jerusalem, says they come in and they completely laid waste to the entire land. Nobody is left. And yet we know for a fact 
we know for a fact that there were a number of people that were left in the land, in and around Jerusalem. Hyperbole, it's a, it's a common rhetorical tool that is used in the Bible. So was it a local flood or was it a global flood? Was it a cataclysmic event that covered all the land? Hyperbole. It is saying that this grand event that covered the whole planet, everybody knows there was a flood. Everybody knows there was a regional flood. It's not trying to say to us that there was a flood that covered the entire globe. People commonly knew in that day, very well known, that there had been a flood, that there had been a a local, regionalized flood. It was common, common knowledge. Well, how about the judgment part of it? Not every cataclysmic event in the Bible is viewed as a judgment from God. And this is where I want to go from hyperbole, which was commonly used, as we have seen, to theology. Because the great point here is theology. What is the author trying to communicate to us? If we want a literal reading of the Bible, the only literal reading of the Bible that there is, is to understand what is the theological point of the biblical author. There is no other literal reading of the Bible. You've got to figure that out. And again, you've got to swim in their cultural river, and you've got to understand how they communicate theology. How do they speak it to us? As I just said, they use hyperbole. But also, they're making a theological point from events that took place, common events. Everybody knows that it was a flood, right? So they choose something that's very well known, and they make a theological point. Now, let me read to you what John Walton says about this. He's one of the writers that is on the resource list, if you want to check this out in far greater detail. This is what he says. Biblical authors are not interested in giving us what we need to recreate the event in its pure facticity but rather in using the event to communicate their theological message. It is their theological message that carries the authority God vested in them. Events are not inspired. Interpretations of events are inspired. So what's going on here? On a much smaller scale, I might say here in Washington, D.C., where the weather can get oppressive because it is so hot and so humid and there's so much pollen in the air, and all of a sudden we have this huge rainstorm, huge rainstorm, and afterwards it's a, the temperature comes down, the humidity goes away, sometimes not all the time, humidity goes away, the pollen gets out of the air, and before you couldn't breathe like, <gasps> because the air quality is so bad, and now because of this huge rainstorm we've had, You can breathe. You can breathe. It's like everything is so much better. Well, in the same way, the biblical authors is saying, let me give you a theological point here, that God has hit the divine reset button, that everything has gone bad, that people have chose their own way. They ignored God. They walked away from God. And as a result of it, doing it their own way and their own wisdom, we are suffering terribly as a result. The world is filled with violence and selfishness and all kinds of unimaginable, terrible things are taking place. If anybody's the monster here, it's human beings, but it's not God. Because what God has done in all of this, because of his great love, is he has hit the reset button. This is a recreation 
story that is presented. If you'll just look at the parallels between the creation story and the flood story, you can clearly see that. Let me, let me just go through some quick things about that. So in both the flood and creation, there is a non-ordered watery mess. You can see the parallel right there. Then you have the wind. The wind, the spirit is blowing. And that wind of the spirit causes dry land to emerge. You see it in both of those stories. There's a blessing that's given. A plant is associated with disorder. They're naked and unaware and their eyes are open. Hey, everybody. This becomes really clear what the biblical author is trying to do if you view it through their lens. And again, this is why we've got to rightly divide God's word. We got to study. We got to put some mental horsepower in this. We got to follow good scholarship. We've got to see things through their context. If not, we're going to twist things. We're going to misunderstand things and some terrible things could take place. Just like I said at the beginning of this, we might say that Ham is black and cursed and all kinds of terrible injustice is perpetrated. Well, here we might say that God is a moral monster, that God is a racist, that God is unjust. He's bloodthirsty. And instead of us clinging to God and understand he is the God that brought us and him alone and no one else that brought us the idea of universal human rights, that he presented us that idea that has transformed the world. Instead of us having that correct understanding by rightly dividing the magnificence of God's word, we will run from it. And in the case of us running from it, we'll get deeper into the problems that we're in. This is why everybody, what we're in right now is so very important. And we need to, as Paul says, put the horsepower into this and rightly divide God's word. God is hitting the divine reset button out of his great love for us. Now, I want to conclude with this. I want to conclude with this whole idea of, of creation and what is really going on in creation. We read it. We say, ah, oh, okay, six days of creation, six 24-hour days. That doesn't make sense. Aside. Let me just say something here real quick, okay? I want to tell you what percentage point the Bible conflicts with science. Zero. The number is zero. The number is zero, everybody. There's no conflict between science and the Bible. If there is, if you know of one, please email me. Please throw it in the chat. I would love to know what it is because what the story of the Bible is telling us is that God has created a temple, that the whole cosmos is his temple. Because when you dedicated a temple in the ancient Near East, it was a seven-day ceremony. And on the seventh day of the ceremony, the God the divine power would go into the temple. He would inhabit the temple and they would rest. They would rest in their temple. They wouldn't go on a bed to rest. They would go on their throne to rest because they're on their throne. You know, they are ruling the world. And so what does Genesis present to us? The seven days of creation. What are the seven days of creation? The dedication of the temple. What's the temple? The entire cosmos. God is living in this cosmos. And when he rests, what is saying? He's ruling it. And was he ruling it? How were things when he was ruling? It was paradise. It was Eden. Everything was right. There wasn't suffering and there wasn't pain. There were all these problems that we're dealing with. When we choose God's wisdom, when we choose God's way, things run right. It's ordered right. It's not a violent mess. But what did they do? What did they do? We have it all in us. We, 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 we hear kids say this sometimes. Oh, I don't need you, mom and dad. I'll do things my way. You don't know anything. Well, that, that, that spirit is in us to the time we're a hundred years old. We will, we think that our way is the best way. 
And so they reject God and they turn from God. But God in his great love says, I still love you. So I'm going to help you out of this. I'm going to hit that divine reset button for you and bring you back. Let me, let me close with this. What is salvation? You know, we like to talk about this in churches all the time. Preachers like me like to talk about, are you saved? What does it exactly mean, are you saved? I said last week that actually what God is calling us to in the Bible is not to be saved from this world, but saved to this world to bring the character of God to this world. I want to say something else about salvation right now. Salvation in the Bible is much like getting hired for a job. Salvation in the Bible is much like getting hired for a job. When you go to work at a, at a place, I had a great opportunity a few years ago. Uh, somebody had paid for me to go to Disney World to go to their leadership school, okay? And obviously, Disney runs a great organization. And here's the thing. Every person who accepts a job when offered to them at Disney, they go through what's the mission of Disney, what's the vision of Disney, and what are the values of Disney. And then I say, okay, I'm excited about that, and I want to I wanna work for this great company because they have a great mission, they have a great vision, they have great values. I'm bought in. I'm going to be a cast member for Disney. Well, what you have in Genesis 1 through 11 is God is giving us theological history. He's giving us his mission, his vision, and his values. Now, here's the thing. God's business is universal human rights. We are all created in the image of God. God and God alone has patented that, universal human rights. It's clear in the Bible. He has presented us that idea. Do you want a job? Do you want to participate with God in this process of bringing His will and His order and His goodness and His justice to the world for all people? Not some people, for all people. It is the one thought that has transformed this planet and He has patented. He alone holds the patent for it and it is business. Do you want to get saved? Do you want a job? Do you want to participate in the process that's greater than any other process, than any other business known to humankind? We are all created in the image of God. Do you want a job? In the chat, you can raise your hand right now and say, sign me up. I'll take it. I'll take a job. I want to be saved. I want to participate with God. Let's do that together. That is the answer. That is the hope of the world. God is a good, loving, transforming God. Let's pray. Almighty God, I want to lift up all those who has become clear in these moments how much you love us. And for those who are raising their hands right now and saying, I'll take the job. Help us to continue to rightly divide your word and to participate in this great process that you lay out for us, that this world might be changed. In Jesus' name.